0: Evening, everyone. Thank you, Gordon, and thanks, Stephen. Uh, Conflict. There it is, a little bit of animation tonight. We'll stop that animation quickly. Uh, Conflict at any level, whether it's kind of uh, globally or nationally or locally or personally, conflict is, is never good. But whenever it occurs at a church level between Christians it's really quite tragic. It, it's sad. It, it's worrying when conflict happens between Christians, and, and it's also distressing. And for any of us who, who have experienced conflict in a church context, we, we know how difficult it is and how damaging it is. But the question is, what, what causes it? What causes conflict? between Christians. Well, tonight, as we reconnect with with the letter of James as part of this Keeping It Real series, we discover that conflict is a live issue. And so James has to write into it. Now, I don't think people had started to punch each other. That doesn't happen in most churches. I, I know there's bound to be a few exceptions, but it doesn't happen in most churches. But let's be honest, we don't need to resort to fists. Because James has already shown us in chapter 3 that we looked at last week that we carry in our mouths a weapon which is far more destructive, that is powerful, that that is uncontrollable, that is revealing. Most conflicts, most arguments and divisions in churches are caused by words harsh words, inappropriate words, judgmental, critical, derogatory, offensive words, the list goes on. And so, having spoken about the power of words, the power of the tongue, it's, it's not that shocking, although it is frustrating and it's disappointing, to find James picking up on what often happens whenever we don't control our tongues. What happens? We have the tendency to fall out, to fight to fracture relationships. Now, before we, we read the first 12 verses of James chapter 4, it's page 1215 in your Pew Bibles, I do want to backtrack for a moment because so far in this Keeping It Real series, we have been looking at some of the characteristics of real Christianity, authentic religion. And James has identified a number of key features. Here are some of the telltale signs. This is not an exhaustive list, but I want to suggest this is a really good checklist. If you want to suss out whether you are living the Christian life, here is a great filter through which to process your life. Because what James has said so far is this, true Christians think differently about trials. True Christians consider it pure joy whenever they face trials. Secondly, true Christians hear, accept, and obey God's Word. They don't merely listen to it, they do what it says. That's what James said at the end of chapter 1. Right at the very end of chapter 1, James said, Authentic religion that our Father accepts is pure and faultless. It's the type of religion, it's the type of Christianity that cares for those in need. Widows. Orphans. True Christianity doesn't show favoritism, beginning of chapter 2. True Christianity practices royal law. It loves your neighbor as yourself. True Christianity shows mercy, not judgment. And then in that classic passage or text in the, within James's letter, true Christianity expresses their faith or its faith in good deeds. And then last week, true Christians tame their tongues. And so, as we come to chapter 4, James highlights another key sign of authentic Christianity. So, let's stand. For the public reading of, of God's word. Starting at verse 1, we're going to go down to verse 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires which battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, brothers and sisters. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Grab a seat. Through Throughout this series, we've been making the point that James doesn't kind of hold back. The language that James uses right throughout his letter, it's strong, it's provocative, it's pretty in your face. And so some of the phrases in those 12 verses are quite inflammatory. But what he does is he starts with a great and a searching question. And the question is that this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And I want us just to pause there for a moment. And I want us to think, what does cause fights and quarrels amongst Christians? Okay. I'm not going to get you to feed this back, okay? But I want you to just think for a moment, what does cause fights and quarrels amongst Christians? Personality clashes? Style issues. Dress? Worship styles? Leadership? Change? Money? Doctrine? Direction? I'm sure we could all think of a number of things that seem to spark tension between Christians. But I want you to notice that James doesn't seem to be too concerned with the specifics. He's more intent on getting to the heart of the matter And the heart of the matter is what? The matter of the heart. You see, very often, and let's be honest, whenever we hear the kind of question, what is it that causes fights and quarrels, our natural default tendency often is to say, they do. The other person does. Other people are the problem. If if only everybody could kind of see things my way. But James cuts to the chase, and he kind of doesn't let us away with it. He doesn't let anyone who's reading his letter look out there. He actually says, you need to look in here. What causes fights and quarrels among you, he asks. Then he follows it up with this. Don't they come. Please please hear this, because remember, James is writing to God's people. They're scattered, yes, but he's writing to God's people. What causes fights and quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And so what James does is he kind of flicks the spotlight onto what is going on in each of our hearts. It's not the first time he's done this in his letter. Back in chapter 1, he made the point that it's from the evil desires of our own hearts that temptation comes. Plus, if you were here last week, you'll recall that our inconsistent speech, where one minute we're praising God and the next we're cursing other human beings. Where does James say that comes from? Your heart. And salt water and spring water come from the same source? He says, no. And as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here in chapter 4, James kind of cuts to the core, and he cuts straight to the heart of the matter, and he makes it clear. Do you know where fights and quarrels come from amongst you? They come from in here. They come from in here. Now, and as I've said, James uses some strong language to make his point. Look at verse 2. You desire what you do not have. And then he says, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Now, we know they weren't actually killing each other. Although, let's not forget what James' older brother, Jesus, once made pretty clear. You don't need to kill in order to commit murder if you are angry with your brother or sister. James is warning us about our attitude here. And he says, you desire what you don't have, so you kill. So what are the desires that battle within us when we come up against others? Think about that for a moment. What are the the desires that battle within us when we're at loggerheads with others? Is Is it the desire to win an argument? Is it the desire to to get even? Is it the desire to make our point? Is it the desire to look good in front of others? Is it the desire to put someone else down? Is it the desire to protect ourselves? And James is wanting us to take a long, hard look within and says, listen, check your desires. Because the reason often that Christians quarrel and fight comes from in here. Are they selfish? Is it about me? Is it about what I want? Is it about getting my way? And as he challenges his his readers, he introduces the subject of prayer. Have a look at this with me. You do not have, he says, why? Because you don't ask God. Prayer seems to have disappeared from the lives of his readers. And even when they do pray, what he actually says here, you pray with wrong motives. Whenever you ask, you ask with wrong motives. And the reason you ask with wrong motives is because you want to indulge your own desires. It's not what it says there in verse 2? Because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You're just seeking to serve self prayerlessness is a sign that we have lost our dependence upon God. We've taken our eyes off God. We're trying to do things our own way, and that often brings us into conflict with others. It's whenever we're on our knees before God. It's whenever we realign our thinking through prayer, that we discover that God is a God of compassion and grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. And as we discover that that is who God is, then we are more readily in a place to reflect that towards others. But you don't have, says James, because you don't ask. You're not praying. And even when you do pray, you're asking. You're praying with the wrong motives. And so the remedy for these selfish desires that often lurk within us, they lurk within me. I know they do. The remedy is prayer. Prayer that focuses on God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be, not me, your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's all about you, not about me. But James goes on. What is it that causes fights and quarrels? Well, it's hearts that entertain selfish desires. It's hearts that don't pray, but he doesn't stop there. Because what he says is, see these selfish desires that lurk within our hearts at times. Yes, they bring us into conflict with others, but they also bring us into a more serious conflict. One with God. And James doesn't mince his words here. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You see, if and when we indulge our own desire as Christians, and remember, please hear me, James is writing to Christians. If and when we choose to indulge our own desires as Christians, we effectively, we figuratively climb into bed with the world. That's what James is saying. God is faithful to us. Throughout Scripture, this marital language is often used to speak of God's relationship with his people. But whenever we adopt the values of the world, whenever we do entertain these selfish desires that do lurk within us, whenever we do that, we then end up lashing out. We end up quarreling. We end up fighting. And whenever we do that, we two time God. And here's the thing, just like any husband or wife who discovers that their spouse is having an affair, God takes it personally. God is a jealous lover. And being unfaithful to him, committing adultery, whenever we embrace the world's values, as James says, do you know what it does? It provokes God's enmity. And James gives us a really simple equation. Friendship with the world Whenever you indulge your sinful desires, whenever you indulge your selfish desires, whenever you make this all about you, whenever you quarrel, whenever you fight, whenever you come into conflict with other Christians, you're just becoming a friend of the world. You're being unfaithful to God. And when that happens, you provoke his enmity. You start buying into the world's values, you start living for self, And it will cause all kinds of conflict. And you will put yourself on a collision course with God. Because you see, God is jealous for us in the same way a jilted husband is jealous for his wife. And I am aware that that verse 5, and many of you will know this, verse 5 is tricky to translate. And biblical commentators have wrestled with verse 5 for years. And there's very little agreement about what verse 5 actually means. But you know what the key issue is? The key issue is that God longs for those who are indulging their selfish desires. Who are doing things their own way. Who are committing adultery. Who have entered into this friendship with the world. Whenever you fight, whenever you call, that's exactly what you're doing. And what God desires is for those who have wandered to return, to end the unfaithfulness, end the friendship with the world, walk away from its values, walk away from its priorities, and find your way back into the arms of God our Father. And and we have a choice here, because either we do what we want, and I know on a daily basis there are times I, I keep choosing to do what I want. And we can either do that and keep doing that and keep entertaining these selfish worldly desires, maintain the kind of pride that it's all about me, or else we receive God's grace. And did you notice in verse 6, God gives more grace. Why? Because he wants us back. He's willing to take us back. And so God opposes the proud, it says here. This is what James says, God opposes the proud but he shows favor to the humble. And so here's the choice. Will love of self draw me from God, or will love of God draw me from myself? Friendship with the world or friendship with God? You can't pursue both. So James then gets to a point of saying, so what do we do? What if we do if we sense our hearts are drifting? What if we do if we are honest before God and recognize there are times when we are unfaithful? There are times when we are in friendship with the world, that we're just looking after our own. What do we do? Well, James tells us. He maps out a very clear pathway home. He spells out what we need to do. And this evening, I want to invite all of us, especially as we think of approaching this table, to seriously consider doing these four things as we take on board his, his practical advice about what it means to enjoy peace with God as opposed to enmity with God, which in turn then impacts our relationships with others and saves us from fighting and from quarreling, which has no place in authentic Christianity. I really passionately believe that the kind of religion, the authentic religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is that which doesn't cause conflict and tension and falling out between Christians. And so James says, here's, here's four things you need to do. The first is submit to God. Submit yourselves to God. And that's a conscious decision. That's a definite choice. This is kind of revisiting something that Jesus said was necessary for every would-be Christian disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow. And as Jesus said, that's not a one-off commitment. That's something we do on a daily basis. But as we think about this in the context that James is writing into, this is about submitting our desires to God. It's about giving them over to Him. It's about laying down our selfish desires that want to live for me, that wants to handle this situation, this relationship, this problem my way rather than His way. That's what it means to submit yourselves to God. Today, God, I want to do things your way, not my way. But submission's not easy. It sounds straightforward, but it's hard to do, partly because these selfish desires are rooted quite deeply. And when the chips are down, and especially in potentially difficult circumstances, our tendency is, and I know my tendency is, to become defensive to dig our heels in, to insist on going our own way. And so it almost feels at times, although I want to submit to God, that there's a battle going on within me, which is why it's no real surprise that James immediately moves to the next piece of advice. Submit yourselves to God. What's the next piece of advice? Resist the devil. And we know the devil's a real force in our world. And a real force in our lives. The Bible's really clear that our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Peter says that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. And so to ignore the enemy, to ignore the devil, would be madness. Sticking your head in the sand in the presence of a lion may dull the sound of his roaring but it does little to lessen your chances of being devoured. And so we must resist. But how do you do that? How do you resist the devil? I think one thing is you you recognize his influence. You don't overdo it, but you don't underdo it. And sometimes that's what happens. It's two extremes, isn't it? You look for the devil around every corner, some people. Other people just get on with life as if he's just not a reality, and yet he is. And James says, you've, you've got to submit to God, but you've also got to resist the devil. Don't buy into his lies. And if you take these two pieces, these first two pieces of advice together, and we need to do that, the highest form of resistance to the devil is submission to God. We submit in order to resist. And then following on from that, or part and parcel of that, is the need, the third thing, draw near, come near to God. And we we know that God never walks away from us, but we do walk away from God. But when we turn back towards him, then like the prodigal did with his father, we find that God, just like his dad, is waiting for us. And so, as James says here, we come near to God. And what does he do? He doesn't stand at a distance. We come near to God. And James says, he comes near to us. No matter how far we've strayed. No matter how wrong we've got this. No matter how badly we've messed up in our thinking, in our arguing, in our fighting, when we truly come back to God, God is waiting there for us with open arms. There are times I entertain friendship with the world, but God is there. He hasn't walked away from me. I've walked away from him. Yes, there's enmity between us, but whenever I return to him, whenever I come near to him again, he comes Near to me, but this turning to God, this coming near to God must also involve actively turning from our sin, which is why James goes on to write. And here's the fourth thing you got to wash your hands, got to wash your hands, church. You got to purify your hearts, you double minded people. I mean, the language is strong. I've said this. I don't know how to do justice, but his language is strong. You've got to grieve, he says. You've got to mourn. You've got to will. You've got to take your sin seriously. Whenever you entertain your selfish desires, whenever you fight, whenever you quarrel, you need to grieve and you need to mourn that. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Repentance is essential, as it was for the prodigal. But notice how this repentance involves our hands, and it involves our heart. It involves actions. It involves attitudes. It involves behavior. It involves mindset. You see, repentance of attitude without a change in conduct is no repentance at all. It's got to be heart. It's got to be hands. Just as real faith acts, so real repentance changes. But whatever repentance, real repentance, whatever it means to wash your hands and purify your hearts, this turning from sin will involve humility. And it will involve a genuine sense of grief over sin. It's not a trivial issue. Sin does matter. It costs no less than the blood of Jesus. We we don't just regret sin. We must grieve over it. And in a moment. As we come round this table again. We have an opportunity to do this. To wash our hands again. To purify our hearts. To turn from friendship with the world. To turn from those desires that do lurk within us. And although godly grief over sin is where repentance has got to begin it doesn't end there god doesn't leave us there and so what does james says james says humble yourselves before god you've got to do this you've got to wash your hands you've got to purify your hearts you've got to grieve you've got to mourn humble yourselves before god but you know something he'll lift you up god won't leave you there he will lift you up And as we do these four things, what I believe James is saying here is whenever you do these four things, you sort out your vertical relationship with God. You ensure that you maintain friendship with God. Submit to him, resist the devil, draw near, wash. And then you're able to sort out your horizontal relationships. And so what does James go on to say? Stop slandering one another. Verse 11. Don't slander one Don't speak against one another. Or that when we do speak against the law, and remember what James has been talking about is the royal law. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Don't speak against what authentic Christianity takes seriously the desires that battle within us. And when those desires start affecting our relationships with others, when we start fighting, quarreling, or wanting to voice off to another Christian, when that becomes about me and what I want, then we need to accept that we're beginning to drift away from God, and the minute we begin to recognize we're drifting away from God is the minute we need to do these four things, submit, resist, draw near, wash.